You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, might be one of those mornings, huh? Well, the Lord's played a trick on all of you this morning. He's asked me, of all people, to speak on the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. And if <clears throat> you ask people that have known me for a long time to describe me, self-control would probably not be mentioned among the adjectives and expletives. However, here we are. One thing I want to do, Christopher and the team in the back, um, I'm going to switch things up a little bit. Put up that uh, um, overhead from Second Peter. Yeah, let me know. Somebody give me a $5 bill when they see it up there. That'll help us meet our $40,000 a month budget every month, ladies and gentlemen, by the way. Thank you, Donna, for your encouragement. That's awesome. Um, as I was awakening this morning, I felt like the Lord was in a form preaching the gospel to me. And I think so few of us fully understand what the gospel fully is. I don't mean we don't know it, but what it fully entails. And the gospel and the work of Jesus on the cross has removed already every single hindrance between us and God. Now, you may not feel that way, but that's not the point. You may not think that way, but that's not the point. We have to see God's point. And God says he's done absolutely everything that needed to be done for us to not just be at peace with God, but for God to have positioned himself to be our chief um, proponent in life. It's not just that he has forgiven us. It's that he is 100% for us, for us. Now, one of the reasons we don't embrace or enjoy that, I think, is because we don't give it to other people. Because if God looks at me that way, he looks at everybody that way, and the gospel is a proclamation to people of what God's done in Christ. So one of the things that struck me is... Um, we, we have a perfect gospel. We have a perfect, the good, glad, happy news that makes men jump for joy gospel when it's accurately seen. Um, it's perfect. We have a perfect gospel. The, 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 um, the Bible teaches this, but we don't see it. The Bible teaches that actually it's in, um, first Corinthians 611. Let me just read this. Who's in a hurry? Yeah, me too, but that's all right. Um, 1 Corinthians 611 says nothing unless you read it. So 
and such were some of you. He's talking about people in trouble in all different kind of ways. And so he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. Somebody say sanctified. Sanctified. What could that mean? It means you were made holy. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, when you believed on Jesus, simple faith in Jesus, you were sanctified. You were justified. Now, here's something even um, more outrageous. You, you were perfected. Hebrews 10.14. Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews 10.14. It's in the New Testament. Hebrews 10.14. Um, and it's not there, so I've written it down the wrong place. But here's what it says. He is perfected forever. Say perfected forever. Them that are sanctified. Oh, who is sanctified? Paul said, well, you didn't used to be, but you are now because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. So what I'm trying to get at is this. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter says in verse 3, and I'm reading the Passion Translation because it enlarges this. Everything we could ever need for life and godliness has already what? Are you reading it? No. Is it up there? No. Can it be? Yes. Is it now? Everything we could ever need for life and godliness has what? Already been deposited in who? Us by his, whose, his divine power. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit belong to two people, you and the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, it's not about um, how hard you try. It's about how much you understand and learn how to access. Yeah, yeah. Because it's already in you. I mean, that's what the Bible says. That's pretty good news, though. Everything you need, you have. Let me say it a different way. Everything you need, you have. Or I could say it this way, which makes more sense. Everything you need, you actually, in Christ, already have. Well, that is good news. Now the trick is learning how to access it, but you'll never access something you don't believe you have. You'll try, and the harder you try, the worse you'll do. Come on. For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. That's verse 3. Verse 4. As a result of this, he has given you magnificent promises. That's what I'm telling you, the promises that God has put this in you. That's a promise. The magnificent promises that are beyond all price so that you, or so that through 
the power of these tremendous promises, we can experience partnership with what? The divine nature by which you have escaped the corrupt desires that are of the world. So what should you do in verse 5? Devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith with goodness. Now they begin to talk about aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And what should you do with goodness? You should add understanding. That's what I'm trying to give you this morning is some understanding. And what should you add to understanding? Add the strength of self-control. And to self-control, add patient endurance. And to patient endurance, add godliness. And to godliness, add what? Add, add, oh, add mercy. Sorry, here it was, right here on my, add mercy toward your brothers and sisters and to mercy toward others, add unending love. Now, here he goes again. Since these virtues are already planted deep within and you possess them in abundant supply, how many of you want to argue with that? Help yourself. But there it is. They will keep you from being inactive or fruitless in your pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more intimately. But what if you like these things? Verse 9. But if anyone likes these things, he is. It doesn't say, but if anyone likes these things, he doesn't have them. It says, if anybody lacks these things, he, yeah, now, if you're blind, you don't see things. Obviously, that's a redundancy of high intellectual magnitude. However, everything you don't see is there. It's real. But if anyone lacks these things, he is blind. Constantly closing his eyes to the, this is a mystery, mystery of our faith, and forgetting his innocence for his past sins have been washed away. That's one of the things the Lord was talking to me this morning about our sins being washed away. People do not realize it, but I believe it to be true from my experience and things I've read, things I've studied, things I've heard. Everyone in the world is hit with... um, either a low-level or high-level sense of moral weakness, shame, discontent, or something. And I believe a large part of that is the condemnation of the devil. You know, it's amazing to me, when you read the Old Testament, you see very little about the devil. When you read the New Testament, Jesus is casting him bodily out of people. Now, what that means is the devil is a real entity, and what he does primarily is accuse you before God. And that is a spiritual, it's not a psychological, therapeutic definition of shame, but it's a spiritual understanding of what it is to feel less than. Well, here's what the gospel does. The gospel promises you that you have been given everything in Christ that would take care of feeling 
less than. Your sins are forgiven. We don't understand how the trail of that guilt about our past tries to ensnare us. But Paul, oh, actually, Peter, now the most impetuous of the apostles is teaching it about self-control this morning here in Second Peter. It's interesting. He was the most unreasonably um, 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 uncontrollable believer, but that's, that's the goodness of God. But Peter wants us to understand that our sins are forgiven. We're washed. We're cleansed. God holds nothing against us based on the gospel. Verse 10, for this reason, beloved ones, be eager to confirm and validate that God has invited you to salvation and claimed you. I love naming and claim it when it comes to God claiming me. Let's say I'm claimed. 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 Let's think about claiming a stake in the in a, a people that look for gold. They lay claim. That means nobody else can have what they've got. Nobody else can have you if God's claimed you as his own. You may not believe that, and that would be the source of a lot of your troubles, but it is true. If you do these things, it goes on to say, you will never stumble. What a promise. What a promise. And I like... Um, Verse 11 in the New King James. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, all right. 20 minutes early, we're going to take off. Not on your life. No, we are not. I'm going to talk about self-control, even if it kills you. (laughs) It dawned on me this week, though, that the fruit of the Spirit are, here's a term, symbiotic. And that term means that each fruit has a mutually beneficial relationship with each other. In other words, if you have self-control, you're more loving. If you're more loving, you have more self-control. And the reason all of that is true is because the fruit of the Spirit is actually a description of the person of the Holy Ghost. He's not broken into nine different parts. He's all a part of one. But what he does for us can be described in these nine different ways called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's important that we have self-control. Matter of fact, self-control is a lifesaver. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If your walls have been destroyed, you become vulnerable to attack. Here's the way your attacks can come. Anger, rage, harmful behavior. There are other verses about the importance of self-control. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, when I, I, um, everybody's so angry on the internet, aren't they? Shouting, screaming, haranguing, fussing, criticizing, condemning. I just sort of think, um, 
life's, life's too short to fuss about everything. What we really need to do, now this is, of course, my opinion, is we need to live the kind of life that would make other people want to live the kind of life that would make a difference to other people. And so here the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. The Bible says in another proverb, I'm not going to cover all these, but you can look these up. He who is slow to anger is better and more honorable than a mighty soldier. And he who rules and controls his own spirit than he who captures a city. In James 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Oh, really? Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. Self-righteous indignation isn't either. Here's what is. Self-control. Learning how to care for people. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, James said. Here's another good one. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. How many of you have talked your way into calamity? You know, it's easier to talk your way into calamity than to talk your way out. Have you ever discovered that? That's true, man. Not that I would know. Okay. I didn't, I took this, I did not want to do this fruit of the spirit for obvious reasons. But there are less obvious reasons. One is I didn't want to dump this on anybody else for them to have to try. Because I was thinking, what is there to say? You know, hey, you know what you're doing? Stop. (laughs) God will help you. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Yeah, but I think we have to see the wisdom in it. We have to understand why it's important to exercise self-control. And so... I Googled it, and I found a website where this woman was teaching her children self-control through some different Bible stories. And so one of them was this one. Um, It's about the relationship between David and Saul. David was to be the king of Israel, but Saul was king at a particular time. Um, But the Lord was dissatisfied with how Saul ruled. As I mentioned, God's ultimate purpose for David was to be king. Do you know how long David waited to be king? He was 40. He knew about it as a teenager. Let's say he was 13 when he was anointed originally. 13 and uh, what is that, 27, 37, 27 years he waited on his calling. Twenty. Somebody say 27. Don't anybody say that. God's ultimate purpose for David was to become king. David knew it, but he also realized he was too inexperienced to reign effectively and with honor. It's one thing to do well. It's another thing to do well with honor. Saul recognized David's potential. How many of you remember the story of David and Goliath? You may also remember that David was a skillful musician, and at a given point, Um, Saul invited David to join um, the royal court. 
But as the relationship developed, Saul became jealous of David. And jealousy is a very dangerous emotion. Jealousy and insecurity began to predominate Saul's life to the degree that he decided to kill David. You ever felt like killing anybody? That's rhetorical. <laughs> I, I've considered it. I didn't. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Wait. I preached on hating somebody a couple of weeks ago. You remember that? Can I be that bold? But the Lord helped me because I admitted I was a hater. <laughs> that is crazy. Anyway, it's real. You own to disown. You do. It's the only way out. It's not their fault. It's yours. Even when they do stuff. Anyway, another message for another time. Jealousy and insecurity pushed Saul to the degree that he decided to murder David. And so he pursued David. Historians aren't sure exactly the length of time, but it was between four and seven years. David was a vagabond, a wanderer, a nomad, pursued by the king of Israel to kill him. At one point, and we find this in First uh, Samuel 24. Saul took 3,000 men from all Israel and went to find David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. What a place. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. Um, interpret that ancient portageon. It happens. David and his men were hiding in the recesses of that same cave. Very interesting. Anyway, then David's men said to David, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, can you picture that whole scenario? It's, um, the Bible is such an awesome book, the stuff it puts in there. So Saul is taking care of business, taking care of business in every way. No, taking care of <laughs> Somebody lighten up. Listen, this, we're just people. It's, I, I, I'm, it's just the Bible. And uh, David cut off part of Saul's robe, and Saul didn't know it. Now, after David did that, the Bible tells us it troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And something very significant comes to play here. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, so stretch out my hand against him or to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he's the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. Saul got up, left the cave, went on his way, never knew David was there. Then later, David went outside and sort of said, look, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't, and I didn't to prove to you, I am not after what you have. But Saul could never turn that corner. He was too deeply into his bitterness and his jealousy. 
And so that's a very powerful, powerful story. When, Saul, when, when David cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he was convicted. One of the reasons was because David understood much more than people understand today what it means to honor people in authority, to honor people in authority. The Bible tells us even about our government officials to pray, that would be P-R-A-Y, for them, not pray, P-R-E-Y, on them, or not P-R-A-Y, against them. We don't understand that, but that is a significant flaw in the church. It's a significant understanding in this generation how dishonorable and disrespectful we are on many, many levels. And I want to tell you something. God takes notes. He, he, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. Why didn't David take Saul out when he had the chance? Well, one of the things you could read into that promise is one of the days the Lord was going to give Saul into David's hand, and David could do whatever he wanted to. Well, we assume that means kill him. What if David wanted to build him a house, try to get him over his jealousy, and help him? That's a great thought. But David knew he was to be the next king, and yet he did nothing to move that along. Why did David have such self-control? I'm going to tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. Manifesting the fruit of the Spirit is simply the best way for you to live and the most selfish way for you to live because of what happens when you live this way as opposed to what happens when you don't. It's, it's not good enough to say you ought to do this and you ought to do that. No, the benefits of living a godly life are tremendous. The detriments of not will eat you up. And the problem is, how many of us years down the road woke up with regrets at the foolish way we lived, the foolish way we thought, and it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts everybody around us. I can't be a jackass and it not bother my wife. Hey, that's a good thing to say. I can't live that way and it not hurt those around me. So, David trusted God. He recognized that even though Saul was not an honorable leader, God had anointed him to be king at that time, and David was going to do nothing to change that. David would trust the Lord himself, to establish him as king apart from any of his own conniving, politicking, subterfuge, or effort. And that goes on all the time. But be careful what you want. You might get it when you're not ready. But trusting God strengthens our ability to control ourselves. And if David had killed Saul to obtain even what God had promised him, he instinctively realized that he would never be secure in his position 
of authority. And I have lived that life. I know what I'm talking about. If you try to make yourself by subterfuge or trickery or political intrigue to gain the things you know God wants you to have, when you gain them that way, you will never be confident God gave it to you. But if you're confident God gave it to you, you would be amazed at how much easier it is to believe that God will sustain what you're doing. If he would gain the throne by his own hand, he would become the same kind of king as Saul. Insecure, fearful, protective, manipulative, controlling, vindictive. He would never be secure. He would never be confident that made him king. And part of one of the things I've tried to practice all these years is this. I don't want to manipulate or control or make people do even the things they ought to do. And when they don't even do them, it hurts them. But that's not the kind of leadership we want to exercise. But pay attention. That doesn't mean You're off the hook from serving God with all your heart, regardless of whether I try to make you do it or not. Because every single one of us are going to answer to the Lord for the lives we've led. We we are. And that can be a great thing or that can be a frightening thing. But if David had obtained the throne that way, he would have become the very thing he hated us. He hated. Here's an important question. Here's what we need to answer for ourselves. How many of us have spoken against people out of jealousy because they have something we want? Maybe we don't want theirs, but we want something like it. Or they have a position we know one day we should have. You need to ask ourselves that question. God's timing. If you rush ahead of God's timing, you will not be fully equipped to do the thing the Lord called you to do. I'm telling you the truth, ladies and gentlemen. I became a full-time pastor at about 40 years old. I worked in business for 20 years after knowing I was called to ministry as a young man during college. But I also realized I needed to do it God's way. One of my earliest tests right out of college was in obeying the Lord to not go to seminary, to not go. At that time, going to seminary was the only path I was aware of that led into ministry. But I decided to obey the Lord to not go that route. And I wrestled for years with how I was going to fulfill my calling. Your calling doesn't amount to much unless you've wrestled with it for a while. And you should never be in ministry. You should never do anything you're not called to do. I mean, I look at people, they're called to be painters, psychologists, business people. That's the greatest thing you can be when that's what you're called to be. Being a pastor is just a, just a calling. All of us should find our calling. We don't need to exalt one above the other, but we need to let the Lord prepare us adequately for what he's asked us to do. One day, a friend of mine gave me a word from the Lord. I believe it was a word from the Lord. He said, Robin, the Lord would anoint you right now, but you would run so fast, you would put the fire out. It's too early. In simple terms, the Lord was saying, you're too immature at this age, even though you have a lot of vision and zeal. You aren't ready. 
So I waited. I mean, I didn't have any choice. For 20 years through business, growing up, making mistakes, raising kids, being a husband, being a father, being proved, not always successfully, but being proved over and over again till I was ready. And I'm going to say this, being ready doesn't mean you look great either. Just means if, if I had gone to seminary and gone into ministry, I would have flamed out. I would have failed. I would have destroyed my chance to do the thing God called me to do. And I've studied this. I've learned that a very high percentage of people who go into full-time ministry out of college and seminary are out of it by their 40s. 85%, listen to this, 85% of seminary graduates entering the ministry leave within five years. And 90% of all pastors don't retire as pastors. And my experience would have been no different. But the Lord enabled me through vision and learning patiently how to control things until my time came. And here's the problem. Even after all this, and I want you to apply this to your life, because we need to go through what we go through. We need it. We don't like it. I'm not going to say God's done everything to us that we didn't like that happened, but I'm going to tell you this. There are things we go through we need for what's coming and for what what if your life was all about who you could help with what you learned through what you suffered that would mean the person who weathers the greatest problems has the greatest capacity to help someone else that's the that's the way to see this now, we can bemoan our fate, and we do, and we should, and things hurt, but there's got to be a redemptive purpose in it. But even the last number of years, after all my preparation, after all I'd learned, after I don't know how many years, 30-plus years, I wasn't sure I was going to make it through COVID and pastoring and leadership and upheavals and the politics and the financial pressures. Well, you know, what do you do when half your church leaves and your budget's the same? What do you do? Well, you have financial miracles or you shut the door. We were looking at it the other day um, before COVID, and and I don't look to see what people do. I don't want to know because I don't want to get mad at you if you don't do enough. (laughs) But we had over 250 contributors Prior to COVID, now we have a hundred and some. Now, what I'm saying is life is full of challenges. Now, don't misunderstand me. God has provided for us. We're not going bankrupt. But this is challenging. This is challenging. You're challenged, but to, to weather your challenges, you have got to understand God has a purpose in it to develop you. We need to trust the Lord. Self-control will save us from unnecessary heartaches, troubles, and failures. I could imagine, easily imagine this, if I'd have gone into ministry from college, 
And with some of the issues I had, I could have raised a family, lost every one of them, been divorced. That's not hard for me to imagine. That's not hard for me to imagine. But I want to thank God who's, who's kept shortcuts. Beware of the temptation to take shortcuts. Most shortcuts are dead ends. They can prolong or postpone your destiny and cause you to miss it altogether. Here's one shortcut everybody mostly misses. That's listening to smarter people than you because the best experience, the best teacher is not experience. Your experience is somebody else's. I don't want to learn by how miserable I am over doing the wrong thing. I want to find out how you were made miserable and got through it and how I could not do what it was you did. That's the best teacher. You know what that's called? Wisdom. There's a whole book in the Bible, the Proverbs. Yeah. Yes. Um, Let me think here. Jealousy will restrict our ability to move forward in life. You're going to need God's grace to do what he's called you to do. To have grace, we must extend grace. Let's say that together. To have grace, we must extend grace. Well, that's not accurate. To enjoy grace, because we have it. To enjoy grace, we must extend grace. The day's going to come for some of you maybe as it has for me, when you may bemoan the fact that you weren't kinder, more forgiving of leaders, of other successful people, because one day you realize how stressful it is to do the very thing God called you to do. Self-control. Listen, listen, please listen. That's what I wrote here. Say that with me. Listen, listen, please listen. Look at somebody. Listen, listen, please listen. The self-control you exercise in criticizing others and the grace you're willing to extend may determine the amount of grace God will give you in dealing with being criticized. Give what you need, and it will be given back to you in every area of your life. Another enemy of self-control is fear. When you're afraid, you do things you shouldn't do. I'm not done, but I think I'll, I've said a, 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 a plenty Um. I've said enough. I'm on page 8, not page 12. But I I thought about us praying something together. Do you have something? John Mark? Yeah, come on. And then we'll pray. Hello? Is this on? Hey. Hey. Hey, what a good message on self-control. Give it up. And, uh, 
I think it was kind of my idea to do a whole series on the fruit of the spirit. Yes, it was. It was. And then I got sick when I was supposed to do my message. And so, yes, you did. I didn't do it. We talked about the different fruits. We were going to, you know, have an intro and then talk about the different fruits each week and then maybe do something at the end. Um, and nobody wanted self-control. <laughs> I don't think anyone really wanted gentleness either. But, I, but I'm really proud of you for doing self-control because <laughs> no Thank one you. wanted to do it. And so Robin ended up with self-control and he really uh, jumped in and did a really amazing job. So give it up for him one more time. But as he was speaking, I had some thoughts. Is it okay if I share a few thoughts real quick? This really inspired some thoughts. Um, just because I didn't get to do my message, so I'm going to come up and do like a little three-minute tag to each one. <laughs> but That's good. I think one reason uh, none of us wanted to do self-control is because when you start talking about self-control, um, it's this way with a lot of fruit of the Spirit, but especially with self-control, there's a lot of shame involved. Because we tend to have this idea that like you're supposed to meet Jesus and like then all of a sudden you're just supposed to be a perfect human being. But that's really not true and that's not really even what Jesus is asking us. I keep coming back to this. This is the call that Jesus has to every single one of us and has been from the beginning. He says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will, and you will find rest for your souls. As I think we often miss the point here that he he makes a point to say, "Learn from me." Hmm. Is that rest is a thing that is learned? Yeah, rest is a thing that is learned, and so this whole thing is a process. And shame is is a thing that hits us when we forget that it's a process, and we feel like we're supposed to be further along than we actually are. And shame is actually works against the process. But you realize you are a mind, you are a body, and you are a spirit. You're not one of those things. You're all three of those things at the same time. And those three, unless you're God, are impossible to fully separate. And the three of you wrestle with one another. Your body is the way you live in the world. It's not evil. It just needs to be led. And we talk about the flesh. There's this shame that comes on us because we feel like there's this evil side of us. And there's this good side of us, and they're fighting with one another. But I don't believe that's true. I believe the flesh or your body, the way you live in the world, needs to be led. Otherwise, it's an unparented child. The flesh is not evil. It just can't be in charge. <laughs> if my flesh is in charge, now eat chips every time I pass the pantry. Because your body has built-in biological desires and things that are actually good in a sense because it's the way you live in the world and do the things you need to do. It's like the fight or flight. If your kid's about to get hit by a car, you should feel anxiety at that moment because you should leap, to, right? But you shouldn't feel anxiety just in everyday life over things that it's not going to help. Right? But this is your flesh, right? And I like this because it takes some ambiguity out of it. The fruit of the Spirit shows us what it's like. It, you know how when you're trying to do something, like if you're, if you're building a wall, you need, you need like the little level to know that what's up is up and what's down is down. I know because I'm building a shed, and I did a terrible job on the foundation. And so now I'm doing the trim, and none of it is fitting because I didn't have a guide. 
right? You do that with your YouTube video. You put a YouTube video out. You put 10 of them out. One of them does good, so you use that one as the measure for the next ones, right? You all know what I'm talking about. Use data. But that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. When you see and experience self-control in your life, that is where the Spirit is speaking to you, and it doesn't have to be ambiguous. When you're in those moments where you know that you have mastery over your flesh, that is the Lord speaking to you. That is where the Spirit is guiding you, and that's where we need to double down. Thanks for letting me come up and um, speak. Yes, yes, you're welcome. Your message really inspired me this morning. So. Us, that's yeah. why I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm, not well, just. I love you very much. I love, yeah. I love you too. You want to pray? You want to pray? I do want to pray. Yeah. I want, um, I want us to to stand up. And find someone you hate. I mean, no. Find someone you can pray with. Ask them if you may touch them appropriately. And then here's what I want us to pray. I'm going to tell you first. I want us to pray for one another that we discover every good thing that is in us in Christ. Okay? So let's pray that together. And I want you to pray it back and forth. I don't want you just to hear me. I want you to participate. Yeah. John Mark, I'm praying for you. You can pray for me. Lord, I pray that John Mark discovers every good thing that is in him in Christ. Because Christ Jesus dwells in him. Father, everyone in the room, pray that for me too. I believe in this. It's important to be prayed for. Yeah. And I want, to know, I want us to do another prayer that Paul actually prayed. He prayed that, let me find it. So, uh, um, verse 17 of chapter 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the Spirit of of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know his hope. So, Father, I read that and I'm going to pray it. I pray for, Lord, we need revelatory help. We need the participatory Holy Ghost who touches and heals and blesses and inebriates and does all those things. But we pray, um, Father of glory, Lord Jesus Christ, give to us the spirit of wisdom. Father, I pray for this church. Give to everyone in here the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open our eyes. Enlighten us, Lord. Enlighten us, Lord. Enlighten us, Lord, so that we might know the hope of your calling.
Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 